Would you please turn to Ephesians? We're continuing with our series looking at the Apostle Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Ephesians. The Apostle Paul has spent the first three chapters of this epistle to the Ephesians considering the tremendous spiritual blessings, or at least some of the tremendous spiritual blessings that they have in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in Jesus. We, I, in, I think it, chapter 1, verse 3, isn't it? Um, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who have blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And then Paul goes on to consider some of those blessings that we have in Jesus. Tremendous blessings as born-again Christians and members of a spiritual body, which is the church, and has as its head the Lord Jesus Christ. With that in mind, Paul started chapter 4 with an exhortation to unity. The ground for that call to unity is that there is, according to verses 4 through to 6 in chapter 4, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God the Father. We looked at this last week, didn't we? All those ones. As was pointed out last time, within that list of ones, there is the three in one God. God the Father in verse 6, the Son in verse 5, and the Holy Spirit in verse 4. I would say that verses 4 to 6 is a list that is well worth committing to memory. It's a lovely, they're lovely verses. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God the Father. Consequently, Paul exhorted the Ephesians, and beyond that, all who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as their saviour from sin, to walk with lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What lovely words, what a beautiful exhortation from Paul, and once again, verses that are well worth committing to memory, and praying that it would be a reality in your life and in the life of the church as a whole, that lowliness and meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Continuing with Paul's exhortation to unity, today we shall consider the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to all the members of his church and also his gift of office holders for the work of ministry and for the edification or the building up of the saints. With regards to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that is given to all who are trusting in him, let's have a look at verses 7 through to 10 in chapter 4. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. 
Now that he ascended, what is it but the, that he also descended, first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all things, that he might fill all things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul likens the one body of which Christ is head to a human body. Again, I know we looked at this last week, but it's applicable now as well when we consider the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to the church. The church is likened to a body, a human body perhaps. And Paul says, if the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, Is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, because I am not the eye, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? But now are they many members, yet one body. That's us as Christians. Many members of one body. In order for that one spiritual body to function in unity and in peace, the Lord Jesus Christ gives grace to all of necessity he gives grace to all the members to walk with that lowliness that meekness with long suffering forbearing one another in love endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace in other words it doesn't just happen and why doesn't it just happen because even though we are new creatures in christ we have that ongoing battle with sin don't we the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And if we were left to our own devices, there would be anything but lowliness, meekness and unity in the spirit and and so on. Forbearing one another in love. It just wouldn't happen. In verses 8 through to 9, Paul is quoting the Old Testament Psalm 68, it's a psalm of David, I read it to you earlier. Psalm 68, verse 18 and 19, Paul quotes in uh, verses 8 and 9. Uh, But in the psalm, if you want to follow, um, if you look at, if while you're listening to me, you look at verses 8 and 9 and see how alike it is. And you can see that Paul is quoting Psalm 68 verses 18 and 19, but he's also adding to it, as he is entitled to do, uh, as one who spoke as he was led by the Holy Spirit. Anyway, in, in Psalm 68, verse 18 and 19, it is written, Thou hast ascended on high, thou hast led captivity captive, thou hast received gifts for men, yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. Blessed be the Lord, who daily loadeth us with benefits, even the God of our salvation. You can see the similarity there. In addition to what is said in Psalm 68, verse 18 and 19, Paul further points out that the one who ascended on high descended first unto the lower parts of the earth. We don't read that in the psalm, but we read it in the inspired writings of Paul here in uh, Ephesians chapter 4. 
there's a, that is a clear reference to the humiliation and the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ with his descent and then his ascent. Therefore, Psalm 68, verse 18 and 19, which was written by David about a thousand years before the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to liberate the elect from captivity to sin and Satan. It's all about Jesus, what um, David wrote in Psalm 68, verse 18 and 19. If ever we doubted it, Paul makes it very clear that it's about Jesus. And, and David, he refers to what we now know is clearly the Lord Jesus Christ. He refers to him as the God of our salvation in verse 19 of Psalm 68. The humiliation and the exaltation of the Son of God are clearly set forth, not only here by the Apostle Paul in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, but also in his epistle to the Philippians. Chapter 2, verse 5 to 11. Let me read those verses to you. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through to 11. Paul said, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Can you imagine that? The king of glory being made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That's the humiliation of Christ. Now the exaltation. Wherefore God also have highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. It's wonderful, isn't it? Those words of the Apostle there. Therefore, after the Lord Jesus Christ had finished his work of redeeming and reconciling sinners to God, God highly exalted him and gave him all power in heaven and in earth. The situation now is that Jesus is seated on the right hand of the throne of God, something we've been looking at in Hebrews chapter 1 on Wednesday evenings, and he is seated there where he is working all things out for the good of his church. And he gives grace to all his redeemed to maintain that unity and peace in the church. It was also pointed out last week that the graces of meekness of heart, long-suffering, Love and peace are fruits of God the Holy Spirit, whom the Lord Jesus Christ has given to the church. And the Holy Spirit indwells all, all Christians. Therefore, earnestly pray that you might bring forth more of that fruit of the Spirit for the good of the church and for the glory of God. Jesus also gives 
church office bearers the grace to fulfil their ministries. Have a look at verse 11 here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. So verse 7, unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. We all have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to to love one another with a, a Christian love and to live together in harmony and so on. But in verse 11, he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and some teachers, rather, and teachers, pastors and teachers. This is all the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to the church. Paul mentions the main gifts of Jesus to his church and which are necessary for that unity in the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. First of all, Jesus gave some to be apostles. Unlike the self-appointed false apostles of today that can be found even on our little island home, the real apostles were appointed by Jesus. It's very clear in verse 11. He, that's Jesus, gave some apostles appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ. The early church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, which is nothing less than the doctrine of God, since the gospel that they proclaimed was given them given to them directly by the Son of God. We ought to thank God that the doctrine of the apostles has been preserved, it's been recorded in our Bibles, and even though the apostles, the real apostles, have now gone, we still benefit greatly from what was revealed to them, and we benefit from that teaching Again, on, on on Wednesday evenings. But not just Wednesday evenings. You think, well, Bible study and prayer meeting, it's a study. Therefore, there's going to be teaching. I trust you're being taught every Sunday, every Sunday morning, every Sunday evening. And I'm not just going to give you some blessed thoughts on Sunday. And there's some doctrine, some real doctrine coming your way every Sunday to feed your souls. Next in verse 11 are prophets. They were the spokesmen of God and therefore they spoke with divine inspiration and authority when they foretold future events or when they were teaching generally or giving some insight. Although not all of the prophets, not all prophets were apostles, all apostles were prophets. So I'll say that again, not all Prophets were apostles, all the apostles were prophets, in that they also spoke with divine inspiration. The apostles, they spoke of things which were still to come, just as the prophets did. They had much to say about future events, such as the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In judgment, the new heavens and the new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. So you can see the prophets, obviously, they spoke about future events, but so too do the apostles 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or they did. The prophets, along with the apostles, are described in chapter 2, verse 20, as the foundation of the church. The prophets and the apostles are the foundation of the church. That foundation was put in place by the Lord Jesus Christ many, many years ago. And it's not for us to continue to lay it with false apostles and indeed false prophets. Again, this is something that certain churches that take it upon themselves to appoint false uh, false apostles and false prophets, they need to take this into consideration. They need to consider very carefully what they're doing. The apostles, the prophets are the foundation of the church. Jesus is the chief cornerstone holding everything together. But that foundation has been laid many years ago. Next in verse 11 are evangelists, which means messengers of good. It is their work to proclaim the good news of repentance and remission of sins through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Note that they too are given to the church by the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have to admit, this is something that I only really thought about in recent weeks. Um, that the evangel- even evangelists are given to the church by the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, an evangelist or missionary, same thing, was and still is someone who has been divinely appointed to the work of bringing glad tidings of good things. Therefore, and this is what I'm getting at now, although all born-again Christians are, in a sense, evangelists with a very small e, in that they are all called upon to proclaim the, the riches of Christ in the community where they live, or in the workplace, or wherever, or as the Lord opens up doors of utterance to them, whatever they're doing, or perhaps Christian parents speaking and teaching their children. And so all Christians are evangelists. They bring uh, glad tidings of good things. I trust we all do anyway. However, the work of evangelism is not for everyone. It is a calling and it is a church office, just like pastors and teachers Pastors and teachers, which we shall now consider in verse 11. I can remember years ago attending a Bible study when I lived in India. I used to look forward to it every week. It wasn't the church I went to. I used to go to a a Tamil Baptist church on Sundays, but uh, the local Anglican church, they had a Bible study every week that I went to with Pauline, my wife, and it would be in different homes each week. And uh, the thing is, the pastor never took the study. It was left to other people to take the study each week. And they were good studies generally. But um, once once we were looking at Ephesians, and pastors and teachers were looked at as being two separate offices. Let's have a look at verse 11 again here. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Now, I objected at the time, 
And I said at the time, no, 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 that's one office, pastors and teachers. And I, I still say the same thing. Not two different offices, not two different callings. Pastors and teachers, it's said in one breath there. As the theologian Charles Hodge pointed out, there is no evidence from scripture that there was a set of men authorised to teach but not authorised to exhort. The thing is well nigh impossible. The one function includes the other. The man who teaches duty and the grounds of it does at the same time admonish and exhort. So it's not as if in the church you've got the pastors who do all the exhorting and then the teachers who do all the teaching. The, what is spoken of here in verse 11 are, are one and the same, pastors and teachers. And as I say, as it happens, the pastor of that church in India did not take the Bible studies and it would seem that he had no aptitude for teaching which was rather unfortunate to say the least, since pastors are church elders. And according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, if a man desire the office of elder, he must be apt or able to teach. So that's the clear instruction or the qualification in the Bible that elders must be apt or able to teach. And a pastor is a church elder. He must be apt to teach or able to teach. Again, that's an office given by the Lord Jesus Christ, a grace, no less, given to the church, pastors and teachers. It stands to reason that pastors are teachers, or at least they ought to be, when you appreciate that the word pastor means what? It means shepherd. And the primary function of a shepherd is to look after and to feed his sheep. Likewise, a pastor feeds his sheep with spiritual food, the word of God, which he proclaims and which he explains to them in Bible studies and in the preaching of the word of God. So the bottom line is that even though not all teachers are pastors, all pastors ought to be teachers. In verse 12, we see the purpose of the various offices that are listed in verse 11. Let's have a look at verse 12. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That is why the Lord Jesus Christ has graciously given those um, that are mentioned in verse 11 for the perfecting of the saints the work of the ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ the work of ministry is what the apostles, prophets, evangelists and pastors and teachers have been called to by Jesus and their ministry is to the church and it's a ministry that primarily serves to edify and to build up the church, to build up the saints. Even so, there are lone rangers, and I'm talking about Christians here, lone rangers and super spiritual types who somehow imagine that they don't need the church. They don't need to come to church. They don't need to be part of a church set up with its God-given ministries. 
Christ-given ministries. However, as John Calvin said, Christ could not exalt more highly the ministry of the word than by attributing to it this effect. For what higher work can there be than to build up the church that it may reach its perfection? They therefore are insane who neglecting this means hope to be perfect in Christ as in the case with fanatics who pretend to secret revelations of the spirit and the proud who content themselves with private reading of the scripture and imagine that they do not need the ministry of the church. You get those people, don't you? They don't, they, they don't need to listen to church pastors and they don't need to be taught in a church because they've got di- direct, they've got a direct line to heaven. And uh, then you've got the other ones who don't need to come to church because they can just as easily read the Bible at home. But Jesus gave these people, these various ministries, for the edifying and building up of the saints. If Jesus has appointed church ministers for that purpose, it is in vain and it is insane to expect that end to be accomplished in any other way. Although, as has already been mentioned, there are no more apostles, there are no more prophets, ministry to the saints within church fellowships continues to be carried out by other church officers, namely evangelists and pastors and other church elders who have an ability to teach. If a church has got more than one elder, then that means that it doesn't matter how many elders there are, they ought to have an ability to teach. Obviously, the pastor is tasked with the, 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 the regular preaching and teaching ministry. Nevertheless, there are the churches that have a plurality of elders. All of those elders ought to be able to teach to varying degrees. The goal of the various ministries can be seen in verses 13 and 14. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. The Lord Jesus Christ is the object of both the unity of the faith and the knowledge that is spoken of in those verses. There is only one true faith as has already been seen in verse 5, it is faith in the incarnate Son of God who by his death on the cross has reconciled hell-deserving sinners to a thrice-holy God. However, the saints are not always united in that one true faith. As I've already said, that's for sure. And so it is that in the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17, He prayed for unity. He prayed to his Father for unity. As for knowledge, which is not to be confused with faith, they're very closely linked, but they're not the same thing. 
when you love someone, presumably, you want to know more about that person. More and more each day. You know Jesus, then I presume, uh, rather you love Jesus, presumably, you want to know more about Jesus. And so it's my God-given task to teach you more about the Lord Jesus Christ. Being united in the Christian faith and growing in the knowledge of the Son of God is the goal of the various church ministries to the end that the saints might reach full maturity by growing in holiness. I say holiness because the more you know about Jesus, the more consecrated to God you will be. The more you will reject the things of this world and see this world for what it is, morally bankrupt, So, it's the goal of the various church ministries to the end that saints might reach full maturity by growing in holiness and becoming increasingly conformed to their great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. This comes through knowing more about Jesus, the one you love, your God and Saviour. I hasten to add that ultimately the work of perfecting the saints through the various church ministries is not my work, but it is the work of God the Holy Spirit. The opposite of reaching Christian maturity unto the measure and stature of Christ can be seen in verse 14. Let's have a look at that again. That we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Children are very easily deceived. They're very very easily led astray. And that can just as easily happen um, in the church. In a church that is not built up and brought to maturity through the ministry of the word being fed to them. When the emphasis is not on the ministry of the word by Christ-appointed and Christ-anointed evangelists and pastors, pastors who are able to teach. Without such men, churches and their congregations end up being tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by false teachers and by deceivers. Take away the, 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 the pastors who are appointed by God and you'll end up with a load of charlatans. Paul warned the Colossians about such men when he said in Colossians chapter 2 verse 8, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. You know something's wrong when your teaching is devoid of Christ. It should be glaringly obvious Sad to say it's not obvious in many of these churches or that at least the people who go to these churches don't actually pick up on it. The doctrine of the false teachers is devoid of the incarnate Son of God and his glorious achievements for helpless and hopeless sinners. Those charlatans preach sermons that have little or nothing to do with any Bible passage 
Go on YouTube and, and look, check it out yourself. What a lot of churches are offering now, the food that they are offering to their congregations. Sermons with little or nothing to do with Christ. Uh, nothing, hardly any Bible passage, if indeed the scriptures are referred to at all. As such, Bibles aren't really necessary. You don't really see people uh, with Bibles on their knees or even looking at the Bible on their phones. As such, if the odd Bible verse is mentioned, if it happens to be mentioned, it's conveniently projected onto a screen so that we don't have to um, weary ourselves trying to find it in a Bible. Just put it up on a screen. The food that the hearers receive from the false teachers and deceivers is heavily laden with artificial additives such as worldly wisdom, a reliance on illustrations and witty little anecdotes. And you guarantee that everyone leaves that church remembering the funnies and the illustrations and nothing else. Consequently, souls are not being fed, they're not being brought to maturity through the proclamation and exposition of the word of God by those deceivers. They're not being led to the truth by those deceivers. Instead, ears are tickled, so much so that even the unregenerate amongst the congregations are able to give voice to their approval at the end of a service with a hearty amen. No reason why not. There's nothing there to offend them. They're not being challenged to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins. Even a Hindu or a Muslim can give his amen to that. Ending on a positive note, Paul puts the focus on Christ, where it ought to be. Look at verse 15. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Speaking the truth in love is the complete opposite of the lies and the deception that are spoken of by the false teachers in the churches. That's a very serious accusation I'm making there. The people who do not preach Christ, the, the, the false teachers, the deceivers, not called by Jesus, they are liars because Jesus, he declared himself to be the truth. He is the truth. And they're not proclaiming the truth. It follows that there is no love proceeding from them, the mouths of those deceivers who bring, bring in damnable heresies into the churches. Don't be fooled by them. Even the devil himself um, masquerades as an angel of light. Also, dear Christian, when you and I speak the truth to others, which will include inducing sinners to repent inevitably, or, or inducing them or encouraging them to confess their sins, to acknowledge that they have nothing with which to commend themselves to God, when you call on them to trust entirely on the Son of God as their Saviour from sin, or when you have occasion to speak to other Christians who you notice have strayed somewhat and you feel 
um, burden to speak to them in love. The truth that you speak will inevitably be a bitter pill to swallow and it ought to be delivered with layer upon layer of love. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. But the truth, gospel truth, Bible truth, isn't always going to be comfortable. It's not always going to make you feel nice and fuzzy, is it? Especially when you're speaking to a sinner who is comfortable in his or her sin. And you love that person and you want that person to know Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Then it's a time to, to, to proclaim some truths to that person that may be a bitter pill at the time. A bitter pill to swallow. In verse 16, Paul once again refers to the church as the body of Christ. Jesus is the head of the body. It consists of Christians fitly joined together, according to verse 16, fitly joined together and compacted. The building up and the perfecting of the church in love is entirely dependent upon the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that permeates the whole body, the whole church. Without that grace, the church is nothing. Hebrews chapter 10 brings together much of what we've been considering this evening with regards the unity of the members of the body of which Christ is head, holding to the sound doctrine of the apostles and prophets who are the foundation of the church, being taught by Christ-appointed and Christ-focused evangelists and pastors who are teachers within the church, speaking the truth to one another in love, where Jesus is that truth. As for love, well, the greatest example of the manifestation of love is the Son of God coming into this world and becoming obedient even unto the death of the cross as a sacrifice for sin. And then there's the edifying and the building of one another up in love. It's all in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 to 25, where it is written, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, without being tossed to and fro. For he is faithful that promised, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is. They're the, they're the super spiritual ones or the ones who don't see the need to come to church. But exhorting one another and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. Finally, this sermon which has been about growing in grace, being built up in the faith through the ministry of Christ appointed ministers has ultimately focused upon who? It's focused upon the Lord Jesus Christ who is now seated on the right hand of the throne of God where he is working all things out for the good of his church which he has promised that he will build and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
and praise God for that. Praise his holy name. Amen.